Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, looking at the subject matter dealing with temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, we'll be reading from verse 1 down through verse 13. I do, however, want to back up and read one verse out of chapter 8. That would be verse 9. And then over in chapter 9, I want to pick up reading in verse 24. And then we'll go from there into chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Dealing with temptation. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Chapter 8, Paul says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Then over in chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Dealing with temptation. I want to take a moment to give credit where credit is due. Recently I was reading a sermon on Temptation by Dr. Steve Gaines, who followed Adrian Rogers at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. I thought it was one of the best messages on temptation I'd ever read. Uh, I set about changing it to, to fit our context and fit me. I probably ought to just preach it as he left it, because as I say, it's probably one of the best I've ever heard. But uh, though I've changed the message quite considerably, nonetheless I am indebted to him this morning for uh, the inspiration behind this topic, dealing with temptation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that a new year brings many, many things. Great possibility and potential. Many folks make New Year's resolutions at this time of the year and set goals and priorities for their lives. Many decide it's time to deal with some strongholds in their lives that have perhaps hindered them in the previous year. Father, we thank you for the potential of a new year. We know, however, that one thing we will all face is temptation. But God, we thank you and praise you today that you have given us a roadmap for victory over temptation. 
I pray that we would suit up with that armor that you give us. Every day that we would suit up. That we would be men and women of prayer and devotion to your word. That we would empty our lives of ourselves. Be filled with your spirit. Lord, help us to be a good witness to those about us. We know that by succumbing to temptation, we can hurt our witness. We certainly don't want to do that. So God, instruct us through your precious word this morning. And God, I pray for that one here who does not know Christ in a personal way. Because they're having to deal with this in their own strength and power. And that's a recipe for failure. I pray that today you would draw them to Christ. And Lord, now we also want to pray for those in our fellowship that are hurting. I think of Ray Kilpatrick who uh, over the weekend has apparently suffered a stroke. We want to pray for Joe Earnhardt and his family. He suffered yet another heart attack. And it's very frail and delicate. God, we we pray for Harvey Lyerly and the problems that he's been encountering this week with his health. Many others here today, you know every need. Strengthen them, Lord. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like me, many of you grew up watching episodes of Charlie Brown. Don't you love those old Charlie Brown shows? I was kind of disturbed a few weeks ago when the politically correct crowd came out against Charlie Brown. And they said, we don't need to let our children watch episodes of Charlie Brown anymore because it promotes bullying and other negative concepts. Well, I guess I've got something to blame now for the way I am. I always blame Charlie Brown episodes, right? But I think of one episode in particular where Lucy has that football. And Lucy says to Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, I'm finally going to let you kick this football. Don't you want to kick it? And he says, no way, I'm not falling for that trap again. Who do you think I am? Do you think you can pull me into that deception again? And lie to me and soon as I run up and kick that football, you're going to pull it out of the way and I'm going to land flat on my back. Oh no, Charlie Brown, not this year. I'm going to let you kick this football. I'm not going to do it, please. I'm not going to do it. Well, Charlie Brown, let me show you something. I have a document stating that I'm going to let you kick the football. And I've signed it. It's a pledge. It's a promise. And he says, let me see that. Hmm, you're right. It is a document. It is a pledge. It is a promise. I I guess if somebody is filled out a document and signed it, they're going to be true to their word. I can't believe it. This year I am finally going to kick that football. And excited he runs at full speed at that football. He rears back his leg and and he gives it everything he's got. He swings that foot to kick the football and Lucy grabs it up and he goes flipping and flying through the air and lands flat on his back again as he screams in agony. And Lucy picks up the document and she says, hmm, this document's not notarized. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, isn't that just like the devil? Come on, this time it's going to be different. You can do it. 
nobody's going to know. Nobody's listening. Nobody's watching. Nobody's going to care. It's going to be different this time. And then he has you. In James 1, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. But praise God, folks. God has given us wonderful incentives and examples and, and promises about winning the victory over temptation. He's given us a road map of overcoming temptation and walking in obedience to God. And that's what this passage is all about. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning from the first 11 verses is the deception of temptation. At the very heart of temptation is deception. In your mind, go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible with me for a moment. Back to Genesis chapter 3. There were uh, Adam and Eve in the garden... And God had provided for them everything that they could have ever possibly needed. And yet Satan comes along and he deceives Eve. He gets her to look at the forbidden fruit and she sees that, that it is desirous to make one wise. And he says, look, it, it's good and if you will just eat of this and give to Adam and he eats, your eyes will be opened and you will be wise knowing good from evil and you will be like God. And we know the rest of the story. She was deceived indeed. She took the fruit, she, she ate it and she gave to her husband and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened but it wasn't the outcome that Satan promised. They had been lured in, they had been enticed, they had been deceived. Again deception is at the very heart of temptation. As we look at 1 Corinthians 10, we see Paul reviewing Old Testament history with the Corinthians. It's almost a shame that a chapter division occurs here. At the end of chapter 9, Paul has been speaking of running a race. And he admonishes us to run to win. We need to discipline ourselves in the Christian walk so that we don't end up becoming disqualified in our witness. He's been discussing Christian liberties ever since way back in chapter 8. He doesn't want them using their liberties to become a stumbling block to others. What he is now discussing is that they've become so proud of the liberties they have in Christ and they've become so loose with those liberties that, that they end up destroying or they certainly can end up destroying their own witness. And yet they're so proud about their liberties. And so Paul carries them back to the Old Testament. And you'll notice as he does this in the first four verses, he uses that word all continually. He does that for emphasis. He's pointing out some things. Notice what he tells them. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud. He's speaking of the company of Israel leaving Egypt and God's presence was with them. God was with them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then he says they all passed through the sea. They got up to the Red Sea and what a great deliverance God gave to them. They passed through on dry ground while Pharaoh's army was destroyed. 
Thirdly, he says they were all baptized into Moses uh, in the cloud and in the sea. Now, no doubt he's drawing an analogy there between Israel's experience and our experience. As they were led by the cloud and passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, that water was a symbol of deliverance from bondage, deliverance from the world, deliverance from the old, and it symbolized a new beginning. Now, of course, in the New Testament, it's baptism that paints that same picture. And then he said all ate the same spiritual food, the manna that God gave to them. And all drank the same spiritual drink from the rock. Now there was a popular Jewish legend right up till Paul's day that in addition to the cloud and the pillar of fire, a rock floated along and followed them everywhere they went in the wilderness. But Paul points out here that a spiritual rock did indeed follow them, but that rock was Jesus Christ. Now what's Paul saying here? He's saying that all of the Israelites who left Egypt with Moses enjoyed all of these wonderful privileges. But these spiritual privileges did not prevent the Jews from falling into sin. Here's where all this ties in with chapter 9. Paul enjoyed all of these same privileges. He had all of these liberties in Christ. And yet he was determined to grow into a mature believer. And part of that, it was that he was not going to be overconfident. But the Corinthians, on the other hand, they were overconfident. They were proud and they were boasting. And and while they were proud in their privileges, they were lazy. And they were living sloppy, undisciplined uh, Christian lives. All the while boasting in their privileges and freedoms they had in Christ. And yet no real holiness could be seen in their lives. Folks, what a shame that is. When no holiness can be seen in our lives. Peter in 1 Peter said that we are to be holy because God is holy. And if you're a believer, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you've been saved, you've been born again, and and your sins are forgiven, you're washed by the blood of Christ, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, You are to be holy, you and I are to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to a lost and a dark world. We are to be salt and light. There is a standard of holiness that we are to live by. Now Paul warned them here that a good beginning like they had does not necessarily ensure a good ending. What they needed to be reminded of next was what Paul said here in verse 5. He says, nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, if anything, folks, that's an understatement. Because everybody 20 years of age and older died in the wilderness and didn't get to enter into the promised land. Only two guys got to go into the promised land and that was Joshua and Caleb. Now Paul is saying they were among the people of promise but they didn't enjoy the promise. They never made it. Now you can look at what happened to Israel in one of two ways. Either most of them were not true believers to begin with and finally God killed them off. And so Paul is later going to say to the Corinthians, you need to examine yourselves to see if you're really in the faith because you profess to know the Lord but you're not living very much like it. And so you really need to take an honest look at yourself. Have you truly been born again because a disobedient lifestyle, ongoing disobedience as a habit, can reflect a lack of conversion. 
You can be on a church roll, you can be present in a pew, you can hear the gospel and enjoy all of the privileges of the people of God in the body of Christ and yet you can still be lost. Or you can interpret what he's saying here, that those in the company of Moses were indeed saved, but God exercised discipline on them, and because he disciplined them over and over again, and they still would not repent and learn, he finally let discipline take the course of killing them off there in the, in, in the desert. After all, the New Testament in 1 John says that there is a sin unto death. And so while they were believers, they forfeited the blessings. Now folks, I don't think it has to be an either or scenario here. I think there's a little bit of both and. No doubt many of those who left Egypt with Moses weren't really saved. But no doubt many of them, perhaps even most of them, truly were. But God uh, disciplined them. Now either way, look at verse 6, what he says there. In verse 6 he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul's point is that the Corinthians and likewise us had better take heed to our lives. He's saying to them, some of you are guilty of the very same things that the children of Israel were guilty of. And if God didn't let the Israelites get away with it, what makes you think God's going to let you get away with it? In verse 6, Paul mentions, he, he catalogs a list of what all they were guilty of in the wilderness. In verse 6, he mentions lust or craving evil things. In Numbers 11, uh, verse 4 and following, it records for us how the children of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt because of all of the conveniences and all of the privileges that they had there. They wanted to go back to those stew pots around the fires that they had in Egypt. And all the onions and the leeks and the cucumbers, all those things that are talked about in Numbers chapter 11, all of those gracious things that they enjoyed back there in, in Egypt, they grumbled against Moses and they wanted to go back and enjoy some of those things in Egypt again. They lusted after those things that they had in Egypt. And then he mentions idolatry. Remember what happened in Exodus 32. Here Moses is up on the mountain and God is giving to him the Ten Commandments. And he delays up on the mountain and the people down in the camp got impatient. And so they went to Aaron and then Aaron had them take off all of their gold jewelry and he piled that in together. They, they melted it down and, and Aaron made that golden calf and he set that calf up to be worshipped. And the Bible says all of Israel worshipped that golden calf in idolatry. And then there was immorality. Numbers 25, the men of Israel engaged in immorality with the daughters of Moab. And then they tried the Lord. Numbers 21, they complained over no food and water. And Numbers 14 and 16, they were always grumbling about something. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you better wake up because some of you are guilty of these very same things. You see, there was immorality at Corinth. There was a lack of church discipline over that immorality. And so he says that they were trying the Lord. They were bellyaching against Paul. They were craving spiritual gifts that focused attention in on themselves instead of building up the body of Christ. In verse 11, Paul asserts that all of these examples of the Old Testament being an example ought to serve as powerful instruction for us. If anything, he's pointing out here, the Corinthians were even more guilty 
than the children of Israel back in the Old Testament. They were even more guilty because, you see, they had more light. They had more of the Bible. They had more of God's revelation. And so, if anything, they were even more guilty than the, than the ancient Israelites were. He says, because on you, the, the, the children there at Corinth, the end of the ages has dawned upon you. You're, an, you're a part of this uh, end of ages time in God's program of things that began with the first advent of Jesus Christ. And so you're more guilty. It's kind of like a pastor I heard about. He gave a series of sermons on the sins of the saints. And one member of the church disapproved of the series and told the pastor so. Uh, after all, she said, sin in the life of a Christian is different from sin in the life of an unsaved person. Yes, it is, the pastor replied. If anything, it's worse. Folks, Satan deceives us. He makes us think that because of our privileges, because of our salvation, we can get away with it. It's all going to be okay. After all, you're forgiven. You're covered by the blood. Folks, we need to wake up as Christians. We need to open our eyes to the things that we're tempted by. We need to see the deception. Satan is trying to reel us in. He's trying to draw us in and get us to stumble. And while I certainly don't believe that a true child of God can ever lose his salvation, he can lose his witness. And so Satan comes along to each of us with different kinds of deceptions and he's trying to lure us in and get us to take the bait. It's kind of like in fishing. You know, in fishing, you'll use a lure that looks like bait fish. Or it looks like a, a worm or a little frog. But inside of that lure is a hook. And the fisherman casts that lure out in, in, into the lake or the pond or the river. And he's casting that bait out there. And, he, and he's drawing it through the water. And he's trying to deceive the fish. And they take the bite. And guess what? He's got them. He reels them in and the fisherman goes home with the stringer full of fish and the fish go home dead. By the way, I got a great fish story for you, okay? I'm going to chase a rabbit here for a minute, but payow, we'll kill that rabbit in a second, okay? True fish story. One time I caught seven, eight, nine fish on one hook at the same time and no bait on that hook. Seven, eight, nine fish at one time on one hook. You believe that? It's true. It's true. I was a little boy and I was down at my grandmother and granddaddy Davis's down in South Carolina and, and while they owned a business in town, they also had a farm outside of town and we'd love to go down there and feed the cows and go fishing on the farm pond. And one time I was out with granddaddy and we were fishing and we'd, we'd walked around the trail uh, uh, by the cove that went up into the woods, you know, hopped over the creek and we went to the back side of the farm pond over near the dam and we were fishing back there and we caught a stringer full of fish. And it's time to go. I was, I was probably six or seven years old. And we come walking along the, the trail beside the farm pond again, go, go up into the woods where the, where the cove uh, was and jump the creek again. And we're coming alongside the pond, the cove there, and the trail is right here, right at the edge of the water, and I'm swinging that stringer full of fish. And my granddaddy says, boy, you better stop that. You're going to lose our fish. No, I'm not, Grandpa. You know, it's like the Lord, because I disputed my grandpa, it's like the Lord just yanked those fish out of my hand or something. And I let that, that stringer, it just slipped right out of my hand and bloom, right back into the pond. And my granddaddy said, boy, I'm going to get you. 
And I watched as that stringer full of fish went down underneath that muddy farm pond water. And I dropped my tackle box real quick and I estimated about where they would be and I cast in there and I hooked something and I began reeling in. Guess what? I caught that whole stringer full of fish. <laughs> Woo boy, I was lucky that day. <laughs> the fish bites and you reel him in. You got him. This morning is Satan dangling something before you and wanting you to take the bait. There's a deadly hook on it. Folks, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're home free. The saints mentioned here in chapter 10 were not home free. And so Paul is saying to each of us, you'd better give attention to your spiritual life. Don't sit back and just rest in your privileges. Second thing, he talks about the similarity of temptation. Verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. As a pastor, I've heard people say, But pastor, my situation is different from everybody else. Pastor, you don't understand. My scenario is different. I wish I had a dollar for every time I'd heard something like that. Well, folks, look at what verse 13 is saying. Your situation, my situation is not different. There's a commonality. There is a, a similarity to temptation. They could have said, but Paul, you don't understand. It's, it's difficult living in a place like Corinth. Corinth was such a pagan town. Paul, you don't understand what all we face in Corinth. It is a place of darkness. And there's so many temptations out there. We could say to God today, God, you don't understand what it's like living in America. Look at what all we have to tempt us in America. But Paul points out that temptations are common. Your experiences and my experiences are not new. Now the word temptation here can also mean test. It all depends on the context, just like James 1. James 1 in James 1, it's the same word being used here. As James 1 opens up, this same root word is talking about trials from God and how we all go through trials from God and God is using those trials for good in our lives to build patience and maturity. And then you get down to verse 13 in James chapter 1. Again, it's the same word, but the context changes. He's not then talking about trials anymore. He's talking rather about temptation. And so the same word, but context determines whether it's a temptation or a trial. We know that God tests, Satan tempts. Satan tempts everybody in three basic areas. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16 talks about that. Listen to the way the New Living Translation translates 1 John 2.16. It says, For the world offers only the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see, and pride in our possessions. These are not from the Father, they're from this evil world in your life and in my life the application of those three may be different but the principle is nonetheless the same for one man the lust of the eyes might be the desire to have an, uh, to have an affair with his young and attractive secretary or business partner. For another young man the lust of the eyes might be to have something that somebody else has. And so he steals and cheats and covets in order to get it. The application is different but the temptation is nonetheless the same. The pride in achievements may, may cause another to neglect his family as he climbs his way to the top and he may even use unscrupulous means to get there. On and on it goes. 
You see, the devil is not that creative. He comes at us with those same three basic temptations over and over again. And that's likewise what he did with Jesus. There was Jesus in the wilderness. He had been fasting for 40 days. And the Bible says he was hungry. And at the end of 40 days, Satan came to him with the lust of the eyes. He showed him bread. And Jesus responded by saying, Scripture says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But Satan tried to tempt him with the lust of the eyes. And then Satan tried to, to tempt him with the, uh, the pride of life. He, he, he took him to the top of the pinnacle on the temple and said, throw yourself down because you know he's going to give his angels charge over you. If you're the Messiah, God's not going to let you die that kind of death. He's going to rescue you. Look at who you are. You're the Christ. The pride of life. Then Satan said to Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything that you see in an instant. All of the kingdoms of the world will be yours. The lust of the flesh. Same three things that Jesus was tempted in and yet without sin. And so what you and I need to understand is we are not the only ones that have ever been tempted the way that you are being tempted. Your experiences are common to all of humanity. Your situation is not different. And so you can't make excuses that nobody else understands what you're faced with. Third thing I want you to see with me, the victory over temptation. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, take, uh, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's strength begins with humility. The Corinthians needed a good healthy dose of humility because they were so proud. And their pride and their overconfidence was calling, uh, causing some of them to fall. The Bible is filled with examples of people who fail because of pride and overconfidence. Just read the story in the book of Esther about Haman. Old wicked Haman. He, he had those gallows built and he determined that he was going to put Mordecai on those gallows and he was going to hang him and he was going to destroy all the Jewish people who lived in the land. And he was so puffed up with pride. And he was so jealous over Mordecai, God turned the situation around and it was instead Haman who ended up hanging on those gallows. And then there was King Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians. He came against Israel. And he told the, the Israelites... He said, I, I, you might as well not think that you're going to be delivered from my hand. If none of the other gods of the other nations could deliver them, do you somehow or another think that Israel's God's going to be able to deliver you? And the Bible says that very night an angel of the Lord went through the Assyrian camp and 185,000 of the Assyrians died. Sennacherib woke up the next morning and saw all of his troops dead and he tucked his tail and he ran back to Assyria. When he got back to Assyria... Two of his sons plotted against him and they assassinated him and a third son took the throne. And then there's Simon Peter. Lord, I'm not going to deny you. Everybody might deny you. Everybody might flee. Everybody might run away. But I'll never deny you. I'll always be right there at your side. But just like Jesus said, he denied Christ three times 
before the rooster crowed. Pride. Paul is reminding them of where their strength was. Strength does not lie in ourselves, but it's found in God. As David said in Psalm 20 verse 7, Some trust in horses, others in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. Folks, God is our strength. As we go through trials this next year, as we go through temptations, we need to understand that we can't face these things in our own strength, in our own abilities or or, or wisdom. We need God. God is our source of strength. And so James uh, 1.5 says as we're going through trials, we can ask God for wisdom to make it through and God will help us in our hour of need. Our strength is in Jesus Christ. Folks, it's not in us. We don't don't need to look at ourselves and say, boy, look at who we are, look at what we've done, or or look at my position in the church, or, or what all I've accomplished in my Christian life. Somebody else might do that, but I'd never do that. Strength is in God and God alone. And we need to be humble before God. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If Satan tempts us, God gives us strength. We're able to flee the temptation. God is faithful to His children. Verse 13 says so. It's a promise. Yes, you and I are going to be tested and tempted, but He will not let you be tested or tempted beyond your strength. That means any test or temptation you're faced with this new year, God has a provision for you if you'll only seek Him. You're not at the mercy of your circumstances. Your test and your trials and your temptations are not sovereign over your life. There is only one who is sovereign and that's God above. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. It's God that's sovereign, not your circumstances and not the devil. When we're in a furnace, God's hand is on the thermostat. God's even more interested in your successful endurance than you are. Several years ago, Discipleship Journal asked its readers to rank the greatest spiritual challenges that they face. They listed things like materialism, pride, self-centeredness, selfishness, laziness, Anger, bitterness, sexual lust, envy, gluttony, and lying. In a follow-up question, 81% of the respondents said, I deal with temptation better when I'm having my quiet time with God every day. When I don't have my personal time with God, I'm more susceptible to temptation. They went on to say that prayer and avoiding compromising situations and meditating on God's word were among their top sources of strength. Folks, go back to chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. That's the invitation to this whole section of 1 Corinthians. Run your race. Face temptation in the power and the wisdom and strength of the Lord. Don't sit back and rest in your privileges or boast about what you've done in your past. Stay humble before God. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and walk in the strength that He provides. I want to close by giving you some application steps to help in this coming year. Number one, live in the Bible. 
Dawson uh, Troutman, the founder of the Navigator's Ministry, said years ago, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Folks, don't just use the Bible when you're searching for a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or somebody calls upon you to, to deliver a devotion. Some people run to the Bible, they'll, they'll, they'll pull it off their shelf, they'll, dust the, uh, they'll sweep the dust off of it and open it up and they begin scrambling for a devotion to share with somebody in some context. And sadly, that's how we treat the Bible oftentimes. But we need to live in the Bible. In Psalm 1, we're told that we are to meditate on it day and night. Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 8 was told that if he wanted success in his life as he took over from Moses and led the children of Israel, that he was going to need to stay in this book, stay in the law of God and, and meditate on it and never deviate away from it. We need to saturate our hearts and minds with the Word of God every day. We need to live in this book. Don't just read three or four chapters real quickly so you can check off that little box in your annual Bible reading guide. Meditate on it. Live in this book. Concentrate on it. Dwell on it. Memorize it. Pray over it. That'll help you. As you deal with temptation. David said in Psalm 119. God's word will be a, a lamp unto our feet. And a light unto our path. Second step. Pray about your temptations. God already knows what they are. Seek God in the midst of your trials and temptations. Ask him for strength and wisdom. You'll remember what Jesus told his disciples in the garden. He said, pray lest you enter into temptation. Well, they all fell asleep and they all failed. They didn't pray. The writer of Hebrews tells us that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can boldly enter into God's presence. And when we get there, we know that in Christ, we have a sympathetic high priest. He faced everything we face in life yet without sin. And so as we go to him and ask him for his help, he's able to identify with us perfectly and help us through whatever it is that we're facing. Ask him to show you that way of escape. Tear down strongholds. Many people have some things in their lives that they gravitate toward. Start addressing those things specifically. Like a rifle shot, not like a shotgun blast, but like a rifle shot. Fourthly, choose the right activities and places. Avoid situations where your temptations and strongholds are present. Choose the right places and activities. If you're a young person who struggled with alcohol or drug abuse in the past, then avoid the parties after football games where you know those influences are going to be present. Or let's say you gamble. Boy, I'm using some extreme examples here. I realize black and white things. But just so you'll get the point. Let's say you gamble. Well, don't plan your family vacation this year to Las Vegas. And then lastly, associate with godly people. Paul told Timothy to flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then he said for Timothy to enjoy the company of those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Choose your companions wisely. Oh, yes, true. We're to be a witness to everybody. To everybody. But we're to choose our friends and our companions carefully. I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me for a moment. And as you bow in prayer, every head uh, bowed and every eye closed, I, I want to...
point out to you that uh, one thing's for sure, you're going to be tempted in this new year in some way, somehow. You're going to be tempted. You can choose to rebel against God and to disappoint Him, or you can choose to trust Him and, and take advantage of how He's equipped us. The Bible says he's given spiritual armor and he's given his word. He's given his Holy Spirit. And the scripture says his son ever liveth to make intercession for us. There's a way out. A provision made for each and every temptation. This year, let's be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Every time we win a battle over temptation, the fellowship with the Lord just gets sweeter and sweeter and better and better. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Succumbing to temptation can damage your witness. There are people all around you who are watching. Some of them are just waiting for a Christian to stumble. Because Jesus faced temptation and overcame it without sin, we can be assured that he's there to help us. Perhaps this morning there are some specific things you need to begin praying over. Targeting some of those special difficulties in your life. Begin making those a matter of prayer. Take those application points that I gave you. Cut them out. Put, put them in the flyleaf of your Bible and Turn to them often and put them into practice in your life. And finally, I want to say to you, if you're here this morning without Jesus Christ in your life, I want you to understand what a recipe for defeat that is. You need Christ. And with Christ in your life, not only will He be your Savior and Redeemer, but He'll be your shepherd. He'll always be with you and He'll be your intercessor. Don't you want that in life? I'm going to ask you to step out of the pew where, you, where you're seated and come down the aisle closest to you in just a minute and say, Pastor, I need Christ. I don't want to face this next year of temptation alone. I need Christ. Father, help us to deal biblically with temptation. And to enjoy the victory that Jesus Christ gives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.